0: Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Thank you so much, Tacoma, for for having me here. Um, You know, just being with you guys, and I guess someone said 12 weeks. Um, I was here the Sunday right after Randy's death, and um, you know, to me it's profound, uh, the grace that God's given not only to Lisa, but to each one of you, Um, that you're here, that you're pressing into the bride, that you're you're engaged, and I've heard so many stories of, of God's faithfulness, the way he's activated you. Um, maybe you've talked about it, but it's been a massive encouragement to me. Um, one of the pastors here in town said, you know, in, in 20 years of being in Tacoma, that he's never seen the, the body of Christ activated the way that it has been these 12 weeks. Um, and that's just, a, it does make Jesus look good. And, but a lot of you, it's a function of the spirit in you and you rising up to be the body and um, it is in the crazy paradox that Lisa was speaking to. Uh, it's the most devastating thing, right next to the, some of the most beautiful things, just side by side, very, very intensely, both of them. Uh, but but God matches it, and and I believe surpasses it, uh, it like showing off with his, his bride. And so you're a part of that. I want to thank you for for listening to the Spirit, obeying the Spirit, and being the church. Uh, it is shining brightly here. It is displaying what God is like and His goodness and what He's done in you in Christ. And so just really encouraged by that. Uh, sometimes when you, when you put together a message, you don't quite know the tone and the transition. So this is going to be bumpy, okay? I've got an illustration that's going to feel really different than everything we've just done. But you know what? I'm going to go with it, and it'll be fun. And maybe it'll lighten things up a little bit. Um, you know, I... Um, I use Twitter. That's kind of the only main social media that I look at. And it's kind of a newspaper feed in a way. If you follow certain things, you kind of just get the news of the day and what people are saying about whatever's happening. Uh, and every once in a while, you see a headline that you're like, I'm going to have to click on that and understand what <laughs> happened there. Uh, and and there, was a, there was one of these a couple years ago. Uh, and it happened to be in Portland, which I used to live there, so it's probably even more of interest to me. Uh, listen to this headline. It says, uh, Portland dumps 38 million gallons of water after man pees in reservoir. (laughs) Okay, Portland, Oregon, only in Portland. Uh, I'll I'll read it to you. Portland, Oregon has decided to dump 38 million gallons of drinking water after a 19-year-old urinated in an open reservoir, according to the Associated Press. Uh, Portland Water Bureau spokesman David Schaff said three teens were spotted at the reservoir around 1 a.m. One male was filmed, so it was on camera, uh, urinating through a fence into already treated water. Uh, chef said the urine poses no literal risk, okay, it's sterile, it's not, no one's going to get sick from it, but uh, water quality test results were due on Thursday, the city decided to ditch most of the water. Um, he says, there's at least a perceived difference from my perspective, chef said, according to the AP, our customers don't anticipate drinking water that's been contaminated by some yahoo who decided to pee in the reservoir. Um, he says, we're not in the arid southwest. Uh, it's easy to replace those 38 million gallons of water in Portland. Uh, so that's, that's the story, right? It's this crazy story of one guy who, in a, as a Yahoo, according to, to Schaff, uh, decides to do something that actually impacts everybody in the city, at least psychologically, right? It's like, and, and, and that's true, right? There's a, something about our, our collective humanity, as individualistic as we'd like to imagine ourselves to be, that we, we impact one another, like one person's activity totally does impact everyone else. We would call that like the, you know, the butterfly effect or something seemingly small actually does impact all those around us. Um, and that, that's really what I want to argue today is that, that even around the topic of unity as the church, that what each one of us does impacts how all of us experience God's church. It was that, that's not true with, with what, what Lisa was sharing. You know, that like what each one of us does contributes in a profound way to the experience of the church. And and each one has a role and each one has a part. But it doesn't just even reside within the body of Christ. The passage we're going to look at today actually says, yeah, it's for us and what each one of us does totally impacts the experience that we all have as the body and it has an impact on what the city experiences. So we might think the lie would be, hey, what I do really doesn't affect that many people Even maybe people even that close to me in the body, and certainly people in the city, like, what do they care? It's nothing to do with them. Um, But the Bible says the opposite. It actually says what I do impacts all of you, and what we do, each one individually, collectively, impacts the city in a profound way. Uh, That's that's what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2. And so what I want to invite you to do, I want you to take inventory, as you're listening to this passage and, and, and this sermon, I want you to take inventory of ways that you're contributing to the unity of the body and maybe ways that you're contaminating the unity of the body. Okay, because this, this next year, uh, you just heard from the external elders, there's gonna be a lot of decisions that get made, right? Some of which you'll agree with, some of which you might not, right? There's just gonna be a lot of opportunity for the enemy to come in and go, you know, what are, why are they doing that? You know, I, I, don't, I don't get that. Or why this, why that? You know, there's just gonna be a lot of opportunities for disunity. There just will be. and, and If I learned anything when I was with you guys for for the nine days right around Randy's death, um, I saw, and I know many of you experienced this personally, uh, the enemy does not actually let you come up for air. He likes to kick you when you're down, which is really evil. And you you actually realize the enemy's really, really wicked, okay? So he doesn't like say, oh, Tacoma's had a hard time, let's let him up off the mat and like let him catch the breath. No, 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 that's not how the enemy works. If he sees a vulnerability, he'll absolutely exploit it, like he... The Scriptures teach us he is an enemy. I mean, he's a, he's a roaring lion seeking to devour, and devour means devour. Like, he wants to kill you. Uh, he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your unity. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to just take your joy. He wants to take anything he can from you, okay? And so we want to we guard against that. We don't want to in any way participate with the enemy and his schemes. And so, uh, and the beautiful thing is when we hear this, I think, from the Word today, and we obey it, and we press into it, and the unity that God has for us, we're going we're gonna to experience a joy that is unique, a a joy that Lisa just testified to, that when the body's activated and loving and selflessly, you're just enjoying, like, this hot tub existence of, like, eh, this is just amazing, even in the midst of, like, amazing, amazing tragedy. So uh, we're all going to get to experience that. In that sense, the the church is is kind of this community project. We're all kind of contributing, and then we're all getting to experience the fruits of it. And, and the joy of it, and it's so much better when we all sort of participate in a unified way, and so that's our joy. Um, let's, let's read the text, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 12 to 18, uh, and as I studied this passage, it was different, like what I ended up seeing was different than what I've seen before, and, and that's how it works. I've been to seminary, and people think, oh, you went to seminary, you already know what the whole Bible says about everything. It's not true at all. In fact, if if I haven't preached a passage and really gone deep in it, sometimes I really don't have a great understanding (laughs) of what the passage is saying. Uh, This is one for me. It was like, I had certain aspects of it, uh, but man, I feel like I've got to open this up in ways that I think, or even sovereignly, potentially, uh, well, I believe that, uh, ordained for today and and for the unity of 2020 moving forward. So let's, let's take a look at Philippians 2, 12 to 18. So you am in the New American Standard Bible, it says, So then, my beloved, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, my, he calls him my beloved. And I, and I want that to be the tone of this whole sermon. I want you to hear Paul's heart. He's like, my beloved, like I love you guys. Okay, he's saying this to a church that he loves uh, deeply. He cares, he has a fatherly affection for. He says, just as you have al- always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Okay? So there's, there's a, a tension uh, in most good theology. Okay? When you really start getting into theology, you're going to find that there's these two truths that sit side by side that seem seemingly contradictory that you actually have to hold in tension. Okay? So we might say this about, you know, Jesus, is he God or man? It's like, well, both. Well, how does that work? Well, there's a lot of tension in that. Um, the, the, the Trinity, is God one or God three? Well, both. Well, there's a lot of tension in that. And in this passage, do we, does God save us or do we save ourselves? It's saying, work out my salvation. What is, what is that about? There's a lot of tension. Uh, but I think we're going to be able to look into it and hold, hold the tension of what we do and what God does in our sanctification, okay, in our, or in a, really in our whole salvation, um, and, and, and that's where we'll start. Um, so, looking all the way back to, uh, and you've heard probably Jeff Vanderstelt, this is really core to Soma Tacoma, this idea that the gospel is past, present, and future, that you have been saved from the penalty of sin, you are being saved from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the very presence of sin, glorified bodies, new heavens, new earth, right? Um, so, that's, that's familiar. Uh, Paul's doing that in, in a specific way in Philippians. So, in Philippians 1 verse six, he says this about the church. He says, for I am now confident of this very thing that he, speaking of Jesus, or the Father, uh, actually it's the Father, uh, who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, That's a really succinct way, but past, present, and future are actually baked into that short, short sentence, okay? So he says he's begun a good work in you. God has, okay? And he's continuing it, right? He will uh, let's, let's go right to the continuing. It's, uh, he will perfect, which is this ongoing continuous aspect, until what? The final salvation on the, on the last day, when you're completely and utterly saved from the very presence of sin glorif- glorification, okay? It's all there. And so we see the origin of our salvation is God. Um, we know from Ephesians 2 and other places that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. There was nothing we could do to change our situation, but lie there and wait maybe for someone to intervene. God did. He saved us. He, he moved first. He acted upon us and saved us. We have been saved. He initiates. Um, and then now that, we're, that we are saved, we're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and now we're moving into this, 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 this passage we're looking at today, which is this idea of like now we have a role, okay? Now we're participating somehow with God in this work of being conformed to the image of the Son, and, and and sometimes it's good just to know and, and to begin with the end in mind, right? That's good, like project management kind of like uh, theory. Uh, begin with the end in mind. What are you trying to build? You're trying to build a house. Let's have let's have uh, some schematics of what the final house looks like before we lay a foundation, because <laughs> we need to know what 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 how big the foundation needs to be to get there. Well, just so you know, uh, the final result of what we will be uh, is, is listed multiple places in, in Scripture. Uh, and it's important to say, hey, we, we need to know, at you know, the end in mind, what is God doing? He says, uh, perfection, right? He'll perfect our salvation, so this idea of perfection. Uh, you've got uh, Colossians 1.28, where Paul gives like his mission statement as uh, a minister of the gospel, and he says, you know, we proclaim him, speaking of Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. And that word completion is, is like perfection, okay? It's like exactly as you should be without sin. Um, Romans 8, 28, really familiar passage, right? We know that the passage, that says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we stop there, but if you go to verse 29, it says basically his good purpose in you is that you would be conformed to the image of the Son, okay? God, it's not just any purpose. It's not like, hey, God just like will do whatever you want him to do. It's like, no, no, his purpose is to conform you to the image of the Son, that you would actually resemble Christ in perfection, in completion. Okay, so we already know. What are we going to look like? At the end, we're going to look like Jesus. Okay? There won't be anything you can point to that doesn't look like Jesus, which is profound because we do live in a fallen world, and we all know what we're like, <laughs> and we know all the ways that we don't yet look like Jesus. And it's really easy to see. It's really easy to find all that and to imagine ourselves, like, imagine I never, ever don't look like Jesus? Wow. Okay. Okay. God's got a lot of work to do, uh, there's still, some, there's still some, some work, but if you look back at maybe who you were, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might say, well, but he's already done a lot of work, like I'm a lot differently, different than I used to be, okay, and so he's working out our salvation um, right now, even as we, we work, okay? Um, so the, the tension, though, is that of a divine enablement, that God is doing something, that he's initiated it, that he's empowering it, and that we're still humanly responsible for our role in it, okay, and I know that I know there's a tension. This this verse highlights it probably as clearly as anywhere in the Scripture. Those two things are are side by side. Paul says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." He starts with us, um, even though he's already said in, in, in you know chapter one, verse six that you know he's the one who who started it. He's the one that's going to complete it. He's working right now, okay. But you work out your fear, your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord who wills and to work for your and for his good pleasure. Um, So there's there's several passages where this happens, where the the gospel, after we've believed, is held in this kind of tension with the Holy Spirit-empowered will of the Christian, that there's now a spirit and a new desire, a new set of desires, a new ability to obey that we didn't actually even have before, that we're now working in some kind of beautiful concert. Uh, But I want to say it's kind of like music, in that, like, I'm not a great musical person. I don't understand. It. I just enjoy it. Um, I can't tell you what Brittany can about like what's happening there. I just know I like it, right? I know that there's a there's a there's a of things uh, that you really can't even dissect in a in a, in a in a directly linear way. Maybe someone else could, but for me. Um, and in that way, that there's something about what's happening in salvation. It's like, where, does, where do we end and God begins? It's like, well, there's, it's jazz. It's a dance, man. Like, don't, don't overly analyze it. Just enjoy it. You know, like God is working and you're working and you're doing it together. But listen to some of these passages so you can, you can see this isn't the only place it comes. Romans 7, verse 6 says, we died to that which held us captive, okay, the sin, uh, so that we serve in a new way in the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So I'm now serving in the the newness of the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Do we put to death the deeds of the body in our own power? No, 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 no. By the Spirit. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life I live is really Christ living in me. Okay, you guys catch that? Like, if there's any good fruit, we don't boast in that. We don't pound our chest and say, look at all the good fruit I'm bearing in the spirit, or in myself, because it's not sourced in myself. It, it's, it is coming through me, and I am participating, and I'm not quenching it. I'm not resisting it. And so I do have some role in that, and yet it really has to be credited to Christ in me. It has to be credited to the spirit in me. 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever serves... Let, it, let him do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, okay, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So I serve, but I'm serving in the strength that God supplies, okay? And again, a, a dance, a, a, a tension. First uh, Corinthians, last one, 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I think sometimes we hear that, by the grace of God, and we maybe just think of that as like a filler word or a filler phrase or something, you know, like it's just so generic, like by the grace of God, you know. No, he's saying like literally, if the grace of God were not in me, I could not do this. It's kind of like saying a car without gas. It's like a car without gas does not go. I don't do any of this without the grace of God. Like it doesn't happen. And it's not false humility. It's not like, hey, I want to say the right Sunday school answer and give God credit for something I, I secretly think I kind of did all by myself right, which in our pride sometimes, hear this, I've done this, maybe you've done this, I've seen God work in me by the power of his spirit, and then I've taken credit for it later with some revisionist history, right, where I imagine I did that, which is really dark and really just wrong, it's just false, (laughs) fake news, Uh, that didn't actually happen, Um, it's just I'm choosing to remember it differently in my pride, I'm choosing to act like it wasn't by the grace of God, I'm just good at this stuff. You know, I can just do stuff, right, by myself, independent of others. Uh, But listen to what Paul says. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace uh, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, this is interesting, guys. I worked harder than anyone. (laughs) This is what Paul can say uh, by God's grace. And he says, but uh, though it was not I, uh, but the grace of God that was in me. And so really what Paul's saying, he's like, I was given more grace than other people because God had this massive task for me. So he's really not even taking credit. He's like, I actually worked harder than all of you guys. And if you guys know what Paul did through the book of Acts, he's like a tent builder. He's like, during the the siesta time when people are sleeping, he's like teaching. And then he's going back and working. And he's turning like crazy 18-hour days. And he's grinding, okay? Single guy, doesn't embrace his limits, just grinding, okay? He did work harder than everybody else. I mean, like you could you can just look at it and go, he did. Um, and he endured more than most anybody probably ever has in the church, um, so he just did. Uh, but he's saying, that wasn't me. I was actually given more grace than other people were given, and that's the only reason that happened. Okay, you guys hear that? Like, there is no boasting, except for in Christ. Okay, there's nothing that you can look to or point to and take credit for. If something really powerful and outsized happened through your hands somehow, it's like look back and see the grace that was on you for that and acknowledge it. And, and, and if you don't, sometimes God will take it back and let you try it without him. Like he'll let you say, you, you get real confident, like I just did that. He's like, okay, why don't you try that by yourself? And you go hit a wall and go, oh, and there's not grace for that. That doesn't even, I don't even move. I'm pushing an immovable wall and nothing is happening. Maybe you've experienced that, where you walk into something that's not God's will, that you want to be God's will, that you imagine you can do because you did something else similar in the past, and you think, I'll just do it again, watch. And you hit that wall, and it's like, there's nothing. Nothing happening, right? Or even sometimes God thwarting you, like maybe with Jonah (laughs) or Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, There are other passages where people got arrogant, and God was like, okay, I can show you what you can do without me if you want to go there. Um, He's a gracious father, but in every case we're working and but 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 i want to see it on two levels we're working but god's giving us both the will look at that he's changing our desires and the work so it says to will and to work um which is really really interesting verse 13 so we're working on our salvation we're doing it with fear and trembling and it's god at work in us both to will the right thing like god's even given me the desire to even do something that is godly and it would bless others and would glorify him. He's even given me the desire, and not only to will, though, but to work. And then when I actually do it, he's helping, too. Okay? And the best illustration I can use, my family and I, we love to do, like, rafting trips. So my favorite was the Truckee River. We used to live in California. The Deschutes is awesome in Oregon. We do it in Colorado on the the Arkansas River. We've gone on multiple trips on the river. And the best way I can try to describe, like, what are we doing? What is God doing? When you're when you're on one of these raft trips, right? And anybody done that? You guys you guys have floated, right? Um, you you more or less know, like, you're not paddling yourself <laughs> to the final destination, okay? Um, like, like the river's doing the heavy lifting, right? Like I'm not pulling eight adults by myself with my lats. It's not like Duke got us 16 miles with his lats. It's like that's not what happened. Uh, The river, okay, and the river is used metaphorically of the Holy Spirit, so this works, right? Uh, The Holy Spirit is doing the heavy lifting. And let's just acknowledge that. Um, And yet, uh, we are participating. You can get in a lot of trouble if you don't participate. Right on, on, on some of those rivers, you can get caught under rocks, you can get flipped, you can tumble out, hit your head on a rock. There's bad stuff that can happen if you don't participate with the river, with the spirit. Uh, you could pull off on the side, cross your arms and decide to quench the spirit and say, I'm not doing it anymore, I'm out, right? And you're, not, you're no longer actively participating with the spirit. You're, you're, you know, you're on the sidelines deciding not to participate in anything of the spirit. We can do that, we have a will. Okay, now, but for the Christian, that one who's been saved, the Spirit is working on your will, and your spirit, the Spirit longs to obey Christ. The Spirit in you so wants to obey God. It does, because He's affecting your will. Okay, you can, you can suppress that, you can push that down and say, I don't want it right now, but you have to fight like pushing a beach ball underwater. You're, you're stopping the Spirit from doing what He wants to do in you. Okay, but then even the working, giving you the energy, the ability to row, to, to row is also coming from him, and then of course the river, like the main thrust, the salvation, all of it is, is in Christ through the spirit, and, and, and that's, that's the best way I can try to describe what I think is happening. Um, but we do need to row, and we need to row in wisdom, we need to row in ways that are coordinated with God, going with the grain, going with one another in coordination. I don't know if you've ever tried to do it where, you know, the, the guy in the back, the, the college kid, you know, he's like, dude, bro, you know, that guy that's always in the back of the boat when you go on the guided tours? Um, He's telling left side, left row twice, right row once. And you can get uncoordinated where he's like kind of frustrated at the right because (laughs) they're not listening to anything he's saying. Um, And so even the coordination of our unity is important. The way that we work together, properly fitted, in the spirit, uh, in a unified way is really important. Even while we give glory to God and say it's really his grace that makes any of it possible. Um, So how do we work it out? I mean, in this passage, and again, this is not something I would have thought today, but what's beautiful about teaching through a book of the Bible and just saying, we're going to teach what pops up is that we, we teach the whole counsel of God. And we don't avoid certain themes because we don't think they're relevant or helpful. God knows what's relevant and helpful. He sets the table for the church, and we, just, we respond and we preach what shows up. I wouldn't have probably preached this, but I think it might be for us today. Um, so he says, "Don't." It's like, when, when you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, there's a particular way we want to do that and that's without grumbling or disputing, okay? That would not have been the message I would have brought to you guys today, okay? I wouldn't have said, hey, you know what I think I'd talk to someone to come about? Grumbling and disputing, you know? That's what I'm gonna pick, and yet as I studied, I was like, this is so important, and it's, it's a bigger deal than I even realized as I studied it in context, and, and what happens, this basic Bible study method, uh, when you read uh, in verse 12, and it says, therefore, you always ask, what's the there, therefore, Right? Which means you're gonna, it's a conclusion to something that preceded it. So I can't just start with this passage when it says therefore. I've got to say, well, what is Paul concluding? Well, the therefore points back to a passage I'm certain, certain you guys studied uh, a few weeks ago, which is essentially the humiliation of Christ where he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and died for us, and then God exalted him. But even that points to a therefore in front of that therefore. So there's actually two therefore stacked. So we have to move all the way back um, to uh, to chapter 1, verse 27, and that's actually the start of the logic, okay? And so we go all the way back to Philippians 1, 27 and 28. It says, and this is what Paul's saying to us, uh, even as we try to understand what it means to not grumble or argue. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit. Okay, it's about unity, okay? And with one mind, unity, striving together, unity, for the faith of the gospel, uh, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you, and that too is from whom? From God. Okay, salvation's from God. <laughs> he's already seen that in verse 6, so chapter 1, verse 6. Now he's saying it again in verse 28. Uh, he's saying, and apparently what's going on in, in Philippi is that there's disunity, that there are people who are, are not acting in unity with others, and we're going to see there's, there's some big implications for that. And so he says, when you work out this unity, okay, when you, when, you, when you live the way that I'm calling you to do, which is the particular way he's calling them to work out their salvation right now, which is unity and selflessness like Christ, which you guys have been demonstrating for 12 weeks, selflessness, living that out, which is beautiful. Um, he's like, I want you to do it in a particular way, without grumbling. Uh, the word for grumbling uh, is Gaguzman. It's actually like uh, onomatopoetic, uh, like, you know, onomatopoeia, like the word buzz. It, it sounds like it's pronounced, or splat, you know? It, it sounds like it's pronounced. It's onomatopoetic, meaning it's a, it's a low guttural grumbling. Gaguzma, like, gaguzma, like, ugh. You know, and it's like, it's like sitting there going, like somebody, external elder stand up. Hey, we're going to do this thing. is like, oh, yeah, right, heard that before. You know, yeah, uh, yeah I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, 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 sure, okay, yeah, why, okay. You know, I mean, it literally is like this, this, this guttural, under the breath cynicism, which just says, yeah, okay, which is, which is honestly hard to lead, and doesn't produce unity in the body. Um, and the second word, dialogamos, is this idea of calling everything into question. You know what I mean, it's just constant devil advocacy, right, which is just always like, yeah, what if we did the opposite thing? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting plan, but what if we did the opposite? Like, have you ever encountered somebody who does that every single time you're trying to do anything? Um, I've, I've seen entire MCs get derailed by one person who's like, yeah, I think that mission's dumb. I, I don't think we could ever do that. And everybody else is unified and feeling like, man, maybe that's what the Spirit's doing, and it's like, "Well, oh, I just think it's dumb, so maybe we shouldn't. Or here's all the reasons it won't work. You know, and there, there, there are people who will call everything into question. And it's not, it doesn't produce Unity. It doesn't make you easy to lead. It doesn't actually produce the thing that God wants for his body. And I think it's maybe even a particular hazard in the Pacific Northwest. And I say that with affection, so I love the Pacific Northwest. Um, I, I lived in Portland. I never wanted to leave. So this is like my favorite region of the country. Um, but there is, a, there is a certain low-level cynicism about the, about the, the Northwest. Um, and I was noticing recently, anybody get Disney Plus recently over Christmas? It's like super super cheap, so it's like kind of no brainer. Um, well, my uh, my one of my kids started watching The Simpsons. You know, and it's my middle daughter. It's it totally makes sense that she would be the one who would like latch to The Simpsons because she's really kind of mischievous and she likes to jab people and joke with people. And uh, anyway, she's kind of well, started watching The Simpsons. Well, I've watched a few of them with her, and I'm remembering that Matt Groening, the guy who is the the writer cartoonist of that, uh, you know, the longest standing sitcom in history, uh, is from Portland. He's a Pacific Northwesterner. And if you look at the worldview of The Simpsons, how does, how does The Simpsons view authority? Like anyone with authority, the mayor, the police chief, uh, anybody, you're either Smithers, like you're the boss and you're evil and corrupt corporate greed, or if you're like the mayor or the police chief, you're just oblivious loser, right? Like, um, And and there's kind of this cynicism which says like, you know what, to call into question authority is actually more authentic. You know what I mean? Like you're a little more enlightened if you see beneath the thing. And and beneath the institution, beneath the leadership, beneath the thing, you're actually one of those people who kind of get it. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of the worldview of the Simpsons. And I think it can be the worldview, if we're not careful, of the crooked and depraved generation that Paul's talking about in this passage. Um, that we're just, we just kind of always got something to grumble about. We got something to question. We got something to push back on instead of being easy to come and be unified. Like sometimes the mayor of the town has a good idea and we should just do it because it's a great idea. Sometimes the principal of the school is actually doing the very best thing for the education of kids. I know that's shocking, but like that's a good thing. You know, like sometimes we should just totally do that. Sometimes the external elders of a church or the, or the staff are really just trying to follow the spirit and do what's very best for the building up the body, for the advance of the gospel in Tacoma. Like, that's the only thing they're trying to do. You know, like, there'll be any other dog in the fight. And the best thing is actually to come underneath that and to, and to submit in a positiveness. Uh, and that doesn't make you naive. That doesn't make you a lemming. That doesn't make you a kind of, like, simpleton. Uh, it, it's actually uh, in line with what Christ did. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the whole posture of this passage is like Jesus was good with obedience. If the Father said do it, an authority figure, he's like, okay, I'll empty myself and I'll do it. And, and he did in, in a humble way for the good of others. Uh, that, that's, that's the whole logic uh, of the passage. Um, there's a couple things I, as I reflected on grumbling, like what, it, and even this calling into question of all things, like what are some of the preconditions that have to be true in our heart if we're going to do that, we're going to grumble? we're going to call everything into question. I think one of them is entitlement. There's some sense of which I'm getting not what I deserve. I'm getting ripped off. I'm being withheld something that I deserve, okay? Um, And if you look back, the very first grumbler was really the serpent in the garden. He's planting grumbling-like thoughts in, in Adam and Eve's ear. He's saying, like, you know, God's holding out on you. Like, you're entitled to more, and God's not giving it to you. Okay, like that's the spirit of grumbling. It's like I'm entitled to more than I'm receiving, and, and God, uh, you know, isn't, isn't giving it to me. That's, that's the specific thing. And, uh, and I don't have time to go to Exodus 16, but that's the classic text where Israel starts to grumble against God. Well, actually, the passage says they grumbled against Moses, and Moses says, you're not grumbling against me. Who am I? You're actually grumbling against God. Like I'm just doing what God's telling me to do with the people uh, in the wilderness, I'm just doing what he's saying, and you guys are grumbling, you think it's with me, no, no, no you're grumbling against God, like that's what, that. go back and read uh, Exodus 16 if you have some time today, um, but the logic is um, that, that grumbling actually imagines you know better than God what's happening right now, what should be happening, and that God is not good, that, that, that he's left something outside that should be here. Um, and and, and in a moment I'm going to talk about the difference between grieving and grumbling. Uh, It's really specific to this body at this time, and I think I've I've been able to think through the the difference because everything Brittany said is spot on about grieving. Uh, Grumbling is actually different, and I I think I can show that in a second. Uh, The other thing that has to be true or a precondition of grumbling and calling everything into question is a kind of forgetfulness. You have to be forgetful. So in Exodus 16, what was Israel forgetful of? (laughs) Yahweh had just flexed on Pharaoh in one of the most profound ways ever, okay. With ten, you know, plagues that were like shock and awe, right? He parts a red. Well, actually, they get to plunder the Egyptians for all their all their gear and their merch, okay. And then they get to walk through, and and with an army behind him, he parts water in front of them, okay. Then he takes them in the wilderness, and he provides miracle bread from heaven. Okay, and, it, and if they, if they store it it, it, it spoils, except for on the Sabbath. So every week they get to watch this, this natural preservative happen uh, for the Sabbath, which is also just like, okay, this is happening every week. I mean, this is what's going on. He's, there's no water, so, you know, water's coming out of rocks. There's eventually quail. I mean, they're, they're getting so much grace, right? To grumble, they actually have to partition themselves forget almost everything about what God's actually done faithfully and only look at like a very singular lack in some way and amplify that as the truth about God and the truth about their situation and why God is not good, right? It's like, like grumbling, it requires a kind of forgetfulness. Like you have to have a very short memory to really grumble, okay? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. You have to neglect all that. You have to not see any of it in order to really sit down and say, man, I deserve more. I deserve traffic and people and cars that just get out of my way when I'm five minutes late to work. And I deserve, you know, all this stuff, or whatever we think is happening. Um, it also, a precondition of grumbling is pride. It's kind of this sovereign, all-seeing eye. Like, I know all things, I see all things, and like God, and I actually know better than him. So I'm, I'm better at seeing and managing all things to tell him how it should go. Right? Like there's a certain sense of like complete knowledge. Uh, I could go into something about randomness. Anytime we say something's random, Wendell Berry says we complain, we we actually <laughs> claim complete knowledge. I'd say the same thing about grumbling. Uh, what do you mean complete knowledge? How do you know something's random? How do you know it's not a part of a long-standing pattern from eternity past? You have to have all knowledge to know if something's random. You don't know if this is a subplot, the beginning of a subplot. Uh, it's been repeated multiple times. You have to know everything to know if something's random. It could be a part of a beautiful. Rhythm, a song that's been playing for a long time. You don't know. You have a very complete knowledge. Um, but to, to be entitled, to, to be grumbling, you have to cl- complain a kind of complete knowledge. I know not only what's happening now, I know what's happened in the past, I know what sh- will happen in the future, and I'm saying this is wrong. Okay, and that, that's kind of a bridge to me to even talk about the difference between grieving and grumbling. We know that grieving is godly, grieving is wise. We know that Jesus, without sin, grieved. Okay, he wept at Lazarus' tomb. He grieved on the cross at the severing of his fellowship with the Father. Father, why have you forsaken me? Okay? The psalmist grieves, and it's, it's godly to come to God with, really even with your complaints about circumstances. Okay? It really is, and to tell the truth, and, and intimacy happens when we tell the truth about ourselves to God. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. What, what Brittany's modeling, what Lisa, Lisa's modeling, what Jeff has been speaking of, that's a beautiful practice that I hope each one of you engaging. Coming to God and telling Him the truth about what it's like to be grieving in this season. That's beautiful. Bring your questions, right? But, but grumbling and complaining gets to another place. It gets to a place where we actually start to be judge, jury, and executioner, stand in judgment of God, and begin to make conclusions about His goodness. That's, and that, that actually crosses the line, Okay, and there is a place where you cross the line from questioning, God, why? And Job, Job had a lot of questions, right, of God. He lost his entire family, he lost his wealth, it boils on his body. He had horrible, horrible circumstances, and, and God answered him, well, we know that he didn't even know there was this divine counsel, and this crazy, like, thing happening. He didn't have complete knowledge, and God just says, hey, do you know how this works and that works and that works? His answer was basically, you don't have complete knowledge and, and and so Job said, "Okay, <laughs> like I don't see everything. I can't put this in context and make an ultimate judgment about God, in this. Okay, and and he, and, he, and he he he. But he brings it, and I think it's so important. So don't ever hear me say, if we're not to grumble and we're not to call everything into question, that means we're not to grieve honestly in the season. That's a, that's a, a, absolutely appropriate. Uh, but we're to start. Sh- we're we're to stop short of holding God in contempt." and actually making final statements about his character to say that he's someone different than who we see displayed in Jesus, okay? If you want a clear understanding of what God's like, look at Jesus. And if you can't find that character qualification in Jesus, it's not there. That's not who God actually is. Because God is in the flesh. He has explained him. He is the clearest representation of the character of God. If it doesn't look like Jesus at all, it's like, that's just not who God is. We missed a turn somewhere in our deductions about the nature of God. Um, So anyway, we always want to check that. Um, But anyway... Uh this, this grumbling and, and arguing uh, somehow works against the unity. Um, and what, what are some of the, uh, the implications of that? Um, well, well, I'll get to those in a second. But uh, the, the positive and what Paul's assuming is true of the Philippians, what he's calling them into as his beloved, what he's, he's hopeful. He says, you guys have been obedient. I'm confident, and, and even more so when I've been gone, um, I'm confident you're going to continue to do this. So he's not even skeptical that, that the Philippians are going to obey this. Uh, But he says, yeah, don't be grumbling, don't be disputing, calling everything into question. Instead, be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And and then basically he says, when we do that, right, Uh, when we're blameless, we're not grumbling, when we're unified, when we're seeking the unity and the posture of Christ, which again is in the context of the therefore, uh, which is this humble uh, self-emptying for the benefit of others, that's our basic posture. It's like, man, how do I empty my pride and seek the good of another? How do I do that as a way of living? We, we unify, we become blameless and innocent. Uh, we, we demonstrate that we are children of God because we look like God, okay? We look like our dad, we look like our savior, Jesus. Um, and then we start to stand out in a crooked and perverse generation. And it says we appear as lights, okay? We become a contrast community because we're living so contrary to the way that the rest of the world lives. Like, if you go on Facebook, comments, or you get online, really anywhere, or you get on Sports Talk, or you get anywhere, you're going to hear a lot of grumbling and complaining. You're going to hear a lot of people in the perverse and crooked generation just tearing stuff down, right? We're in an election year, guys. It's, it's about to get, it, it, I don't listen to the news a lot anymore, but um, it's about to get really raw in terms of all of the contentiousness and all the ways that people want to tear it down and, and call everything into question. That's, that's the way the world is going, okay? And he says, when you don't do that, when you pursue the humility of Christ, when you seek the unity, you're actually a display people. And, and this illusion of we'll shine like stars comes from, and I had to look this up, I didn't know this before studying this, uh, comes from the, uh, Daniel 12, verse three. So it's an Old Testament illusion. There's actually several in this passage. Uh, very, very stacked Old Testament illusions. But uh, Paul's saying this, and, and, and listen to Daniel 12. It says, those who are wise, skilled in living, uh, will we'll shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead, and there'll be those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So what, what happens is when we're, not, when we're unified and humble like Christ, when we, we're not grumbling and calling everything into question, when we're blameless and innocent, children of God, we shine like stars. And you know what? That's missional. Like many come to righteousness because of this. And that's why I said, hey, our unity, we all get to enjoy like a hot tub right? Like it's so good to be with a unifying selfless people. Um, and the whole city gets to see a display people that, that's so different. And they go like, what are y'all doing over there? Like what has happened to you guys? Because nobody else is doing this in Tacoma, especially not in these circumstances. So like I need to understand what happened to you and what kind of spirit you have to be able to live this way. I think you guys have a profound opportunity to be the brightest light in Tacoma." Um, and not because the others don't have a spirit, I think they do, but maybe the soberness of what you've encountered will cause you to lean in in a, in a particular way and cut through apathy and other things that would keep you from really, really seeking the humility of Christ and the unity of the body for the good of the city. And wouldn't Randy be stoked about that? Stoked about that. There's lots of places I could go. I've gotten the land the plane signal. Uh, John 13 35 says you'll know Jesus says you'll know they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another John seventeen twenty three says it confirms the Father sent the Son by our unity it, it's a gospel apologetic um, I'll just say this as we close unity is a community project every single one of you are contributing to unity and it only takes a few of you to contaminate the reservoir so to speak it only takes a few people to spread out. Dissension to spread out disunity and to make it very, very hard to shine brightly in the city. Okay, it's a big deal. So I want to invite you. As decisions are made this year, man, would you press into the power of the Spirit and the posture of Christ? Okay, which didn't account quality with God of things to be grasped, but emptied Himself for the benefit of others, without grumbling, without pushback, holding fast to the Word. And if you do, Tacoma, you're gonna. You've been shining. I believe that. The pastor testified to that. Lisa's shining. Brittany's shining, Jeff shining, other, I've seen many of you shining brightly in the grace that's been given you. You're going to continue and people are going to ask you to give a hope, an answer for the hope that you have. And you're going to see people come to Christ. You guys are going to be baptizing people on the stage or wherever you guys baptize people because of this. Okay? Because you took something as simple as not grumbling, which you might have thought was this little isolated thing that doesn't really relate to anything else, uh, not calling things into question, and, and, and sought the unity of the peace. You know what this passage says will happen when that happens? that's going to be to God's good pleasure. If the Spirit is in you, you want God to be so pleased, do you not? You just want God to have the biggest smile on his face, like, I just love Soma Tacoma. Oh my gosh, I'm so pleased with Soma Tacoma. I'm getting a kick out of Soma Tacoma right now. I'm so pleased. Isn't that what you want from your Father? That's what he wants for you. He really does. As we prepare for communion I want to read maybe a fresh way of of thinking about Christ's heart for you. So you come. The table, Eucharist means Thanksgiving. The band, Yeah, go ahead and come. John Flavel, a Puritan theologian, imaginatively recreated a conversation between the Father and the Son in eternity past. Here's what he said. Father says, My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or I will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son, O oh my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that they, there may be no reckoning after with them. At my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. Father, But, my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Son, I am willing, Father, let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. Let's come to communion with thanksgiving for the obedience of Christ, the humility of Christ. And let's leave this place intent on relying on his power with his posture in pursuit of unity for one another to enjoy and for this city to see us shine brightly. In Jesus' name.